That's the idea. You give them some smart, you give them some dumb, and it's okay. Where's the dumb coming from? It's I, don't, okay. I don't like where you just it, did that. I don't know what, it, like what you just did that. It's not adding in that's bringing the dumb. You figure it out. If you were smart enough, you would have figured it out already. Baldwin's back to wreak a little nasty voice business as Uncle Ted, at least until some hokum lets him digress back into the title role that created all such nonsense. That's John Urbancic of J Movies, the latest film, The Boss Baby Family Business, we're reviewing here on Cinephile. Listen, uh, the reviews have been great. I can't thank all of you enough. Please go and Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review, unsubscribe, then resubscribe. Uh, Listen, nothing makes me happier then someone, not only listening, getting these numbers up, but also someone saying, hey, I took your advice and I watched the movie. So I see Todd Werba, who's one of our great coordinating producers here at NHL Network. I see him in the hall. He goes, hey, you're going to love this. I said, what? He goes, I'm listening to Cinephile and you and Rags. So he went and watched The Verdict. I'm like, yes, The Werewolf. He said, it was awesome. It was great. He goes, it was actually happened to be on TV. I went back so from the beginning. Chris Collins, one of our great producers here, also said that Rags, when he was on, sounded like he was like a letterman. I mean, his bit was so well-structured. It was amazing. And on the last episode... Collins, by the way, said, he goes, listen, I'm not a big movie guy. I'm kind of like Cody. He goes, I, I think I also have seen three of your favorite ten movies. So people did want me to recap, give a little more depth to a couple of those. I'll do that quickly. And then we are going to talk about Steven Soderbergh's new film, No Sudden Move, HBO Max, and also discuss uh, Luca, which is currently on Disney+. Plus. A couple of boys, which I think it's about sea monsters, and then I see other stories, and I think it's about outsiders and accepting, but then apparently there's rampant homoeroticism and it's actually like a, a queer romance which Pixar didn't have the guts to do so there's lots of different angles to it but all that more is coming up let me quickly just do this top 10 so in case you missed it uh, Raging Bull Taxi Driver which by the way Tarantino has a, a new book out it's a novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood tell me Cody how, how big a cash grab is this the guy writes the script he makes the movie the movie made 300 million dollars Oscar nominated etc now it makes it more money he just turned the script into a book now, it's kind of cool. When we were kids, Back to the Future, you could see a novelization. You go to your local 7-Eleven, like, here's the book of, of the movie. And as Tarantino pointed out, what would happen is they'd have the script, the shooting script, and a guy would write a book, write somebody in addition to whoever made the film. And then you'd actually see the movie. It'd be different because the book would go by the script. As you know, the directors changed the movies. Bottom line is this. Tarantino made Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the, ho- the novelization. He's on with Jimmy Kimmel, just as a little baby boy. And he goes, what movie will you show to your son? The first movie. he goes... Taxi Driver. I'm like, yes. Taxi Driver is number two on my list. It's one of Tarantino's favorites ever. Number three is Goodfellas. Number four was The Godfather. Number five is Do the Right Thing. Number six is The Godfather. Two. Number seven is Glengarry Glenn Ross. Number eight, because Patty Myers, who's a loyal listener, asked me, what is that? I said, it's eight and a half. It's from the great director, Federico Fellini, and it's about a director who is lost, and only in Fellini's hands could a movie about a guy who was creatively bankrupt end up being such a creatively inspired film. The scene where they're dancing with Sardinia, the prostitute, the scene where he has the whip trying to tame all the women in his life. Marcello Mastrioni, so cool. He's got the wicked sunglasses, just just a debonair Italian man. I mean, for God's sakes, you got um, uh, all these women prancing around that are just tempting Marcello Mastrioni. I mean, it's a hell of a film, and it's very imaginative. Big influence on Terry Gilliam, if you love his movies. Number nine was Ikiru, I-K-I-R-U. In Japanese, that means to live, and it's one of my favorite films. Uh, It's from Kurosawa. Kurosawa, famous for The Seventh Samurai, Rashomon. But Akira is about a Japanese bureaucrat who finds out he has stomach cancer and realizes that he's wasted his whole life just to do something with it. Goes out with his buddy. 
hit a strip club, get drunk a little bit, do what you got to do, and then eventually he has this epiphany. And Gentleman Frank, who is an avid supporter of Cinephile and the Levitard Show, I see him always tweeting at Cody and Amin and Billy. Uh, he messaged me and goes, dude, uh, any Cinephile has Fellini and Kurosawa on their top ten. So I'm so glad uh, that vindication was there. And uh, number 10 was Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which Cody yep. has seen. So at some point, we'll try to get Cody to see some more of these movies. But that was the top 10. And quickly, I love to give love to other people. The Rewatchables is a great podcast. Of course, The Ringer Podcast. They've had three great ones recently. Goodfellas, City Slickers, and Boys in the Hood. Cody, have you seen all three of those movies? I know you've seen I Goodfellas. Have, I have seen Boys in the Hood. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too big on let's, let's – let's, we don't have to plug other podcasts, though. I mean. Okay, fair enough. Josh Horowitz, Happy, <laughs> Sad, Confused. Did have a good one with Steven Soderbergh. And my buddy Scott Feinberg, Hollywood Reporter. Great one with Bill Camp. Bill Camp, Cody's one of those guys. He was in The Queen's Gambit. He was in Lincoln. He was in The Night Of. He's one of those character actors. When you see me, go, oh, it's that guy. So I love Bill Camp, and I love the fact that he got some love. More importantly, celebrity golf coming up for you. Tell me about it. Adnan, I have to admit, I'm a little nervous. We are, as a show with The Levitard Show, we're going to Tahoe to play in a golf tournament. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw the tee times, and I'm like sandwiched in between Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers. I don't know what I'm doing in this tournament. <laughs> I don't know how I qualified for this thing. Stugatz got me in, uh, and it's just I've never played in front of a gallery before. I feel like, you know what? We're actually playing on Thursday. This podcast comes out Thursday. There's a chance as you're listening to this right now, I am hitting some 63-year-old in the shoulder with a golf ball. That's what I'm doing currently as you're listening to this. So I'm nervous about that. I'm really excited to see a bunch of stars, but the golf part, I'm very nervous about. For non-football fans, Rodgers and Mahomes are the two greatest quarterbacks of our era right now. Rodgers just won the MVP. Mahomes could probably win MVP this year. And there's Chris Cody, who has underrated athleticism. It should be noted. He's known as Fast Chris because he does have good wheels. So, Cody, I think the fact that people are underwhelmed by you leads to your advantage, right? They, they find you disreputable. That's and then true. You I mean, I'm, I'm feeling okay about the golf game. It's just it's just, it's just going to be a thing, Adnan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be wanting to watch Aaron Rodgers play instead of playing. And this is just... You know what? But I'm going to do it, and I'm excited. Can't wait. I hope you crush it with Stugatz with your dad. It's a family affair and a Stugatz affair. Quickly, before we um, before we make some other moves here, because we have a special guest coming up who's going to discuss, I believe, Luca with us. We want to just mention Boss Baby Family Business. I saw it back in theaters. How about this, Cody? I took all four of my kids, ages 13, 10, 4 $91. You're welcome, Jeez. AMC. I'm single-handedly keeping them afloat. $91, okay, on a Saturday afternoon in Paramus, New Jersey. Uh, snacks, of course, large popcorn. Best deal you're going to get, $9.79, but a free refill after the movie. Screw it. Great. Go home. <laughs> hey, wife gets have some popcorn. Awesome. So it's 10 bucks, but you get two big popcorns. So it's actually 5 bucks for a large popcorn. Slushies, uh, exorbitant, $6.49. Got to get four of those. Uh, Dad spurs a little caramel popcorn. How about that? $9.29 for that. So $130 to see Boss Baby Family Business. No, it wasn't worth it. Alec Baldwin is stealing my money along with uh, AMC. But honestly, because of the snacks, it was perhaps worth it. And the kids were definitely enjoyed it. It's not a very good movie. The first one wasn't that great to begin with anyways. I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs. Congrats, Alec Baldwin. You entertained my kids for an hour and a half. You made some more money for your five kids. I believe there's another kid coming. So Boss Baby Family Business, let's skip it. And now let's get into a little bit of Luca. Well, every week, Chris Cody's promised to surprise me as some member of the Metal Arc entourage. I was, of course, disgusted and dismayed and still rattled by the appearance of David Sampson. I was similarly thrilled and elevated by the appearance of Ron McGill. Billy, also fantastic last week in discussing F9. And now it's my understanding, Chris Cody, you're bringing on the Hefe. You're bringing on the godfather himself, Dan the Man Levitar. Dan, are you there? 
I am here, and I'm wondering how much blowback you've gotten from the most ardent and zealous of cinephiles because they're like, this is just bullshit. Adnan <laughs> is his own man. He doesn't need any of this lebitard sauce. I hate everything that's happened here. Chris Cody is desecrated. He has pooped in the cathedral of Adnan. <laughs> the amount of people, Dan, have said to me, so the show is radically different, huh? And I'm like, what do you mean? They said, well, you know, you used to have these long, thoughtful reviews. Some might say self-indulgent. And now you have have a guy from the zoo miami i'm like yeah that's that's kind of what we're doing now we're talking animals and movies at it right there's still a movie element to it it's, yeah. it's become lebitardian which is to say absurdist but yes listen we've offended some of the hardcores damn but hopefully we're bringing in a wider net and a wider audience that's the idea you give them some smart you give them some dumb and it's okay where's the dumb coming from it's I, don't, okay. I don't like where you just it, did that i don't know what, it, like it, you just did that. it's not adding in that's bringing the dumb you figure it out if you were smart enough you would have figured it out already i'm thrilled that you're joining me dan because i would want to talk movies with you for hours if i could i, I still want to talk hemingway with you at length because over text you told me you found him to be a how did you call it? A needy narcissist, I think is how you put it, uh, when it comes to one of my favorite writers. But my understanding is you're here to discuss Luca, which, listen, I'm thrilled you saw it, but it did raise an eyebrow. To my knowledge, you do not have children. I know your wife is younger than you, but maybe she's into these kind of movies. But what was it about Luca that caught your fancy? It's funny that you should say that because, and this is what happens sometimes when you have a producer who isn't the brightest I thought we were discussing no sudden moves. Okay. I thought legitimately, I have not seen Luca, so I legitimately thought that we there were There was an entire texturing about no, this. No problem at all. Let's discuss no sudden move. That's what God we do here on damn Sandbox. it, Chris! Let's, let's take a hard right turn and discuss Steven Soderbergh's latest. It has an That's the one cast. I watched. I watched that one because I thought Dan was doing Luca. God damn it. All good. Don Cheadle. All right, Benicio Del Toro, incredible cast. Soderbergh always gets a great cast. Ray Liotta, uh, film noir homage. You've got a heist tale set in Detroit. You've got the automobile industry. You've got racial tension. Soderbergh's one of these directors, Dan. I find him to be very slick, but I'll be honest, and this is an unpopular opinion, I don't warm to his movies. I don't find them particularly memorable. When I watched the Oceans trilogy, I said, okay, it's slick and well-packaged. He's got wonderful actors. They all love working with him, but I don't find his films particularly memorable. With that as backstory, what was your thoughts about No Sudden Move, his latest, which is on HBO Max? It was empty, and your criticisms are valid here. I don't know when the heyday. I love traffic. I did love traffic, and I enjoyed for the empty popcorn movies because heist movies are always worth watching unless they're done incredibly poorly. So I enjoyed the Oceans movies enough. Aaron Brockovich, a good movie, but it's been a minute, I think. I think it's been, I don't know how many years it's been since the move of putting Clooney and Matt Damon and Cheadle on the screen is enough. And so he went to that again. And I suppose, for those of you who have not seen it, I don't want to spoil too much. Yo, we're about to spoil some shit. I suppose that he was efforting at the end to show you symbolically how difficult it is in any time in America, but certainly the car commerce heyday of American making Americans making automobiles, how hard it was for a black man to get $5,000 versus how easy it was for the Mercedes character to just spill money at every turn. I think that that was the symbolic point of the movie, but it was, you know, a heist, an empty heist ride. I couldn't agree with you more. And 
Again, we'll give a little bit of story to it. So Benicio Del Toro, Don Chidil, they get approached with this job. They're with Kieran Culkin as well. Basically, you go to this guy's house, David Harbour's house, who's very much paying homage to it. feels like William H. Macy in Fargo, one of these nerdy nebbishes who's in over his head, having an affair. Go to this guy's house, keep his family company while he goes and gets a document which pertains to the automobile industry. That's for Frank Capelli, we believe, Ray Liotta's character, and that's it. Of course, something goes awry, a murder happens, and now the story goes from there. Didn't you find, Dan, when I say to you a heist movie, don't you feel like, I don't think you have to be gripping the seat next to you, but I need to have some pace to it. I need to have a little jolt. I didn't think this had much of a jolt. If I tell you a heist movie, this one's going at a simmering slow burn. I thought it could have used more juice. I'm going to give people, spoiler alert time here, if you have not seen it, to You're get gonna out. You're going to give away who the Soderbergh regular is that comes in at the well, end? Well, no, okay, I won't do it then, but I think that that <laughs> was the juice. I think that that's all he had in his arsenal is just, and look, here, I'm going to throw another famous person at you, and you didn't know this famous person was in the movies. Why? Because at the beginning, I put all the famous names up there in big letters, and I didn't put this one up, and <laughs> oh, there's the big juice. There he is. There's a guy I wasn't expecting because this was not not sold to me as a movie vehicle. <laughs> that is true. It's a very Hitchcockian move. Hey, who's our big surprise star coming out? Look who we have behind door number three. Cody, I love the fact you're adding nothing because I thought you did see no sudden move, right? Well, you guys will, you know, Dan's hogging the mic a little bit. It's what he does here. Oh, okay, well, Cody, please jump big, in. Your thoughts? Do you agree the, with me and Dan? The big thing here that you guys haven't mentioned yet is how much weight Brendan Fraser is getting. It was alarming. I mean, it, it was, was totally like, distracting. God. It was my wife Valerie looked up during that. She's like, "Is this is this his life that's gone sideways, or did he do this Ooh, for this for role?" role and right. I'm like, "It can't be for this role. This role didn't require him to be this fat. Like there was nothing in this role that suggested this has to be. The, now he's been gaining weight for a while, and I understand yeah. that this is the pot calling the kettle fat. But you need to understand." Understand that there was no reason for him to be that fat, and the camera angles all took advantage of every angle of his fatness. I'm glad Cody mentioned that we definitely buried the lead as far as what's the best reason to watch this film amongst all the stars. Brendan Fraser is back looking awfully heavy and awfully sweaty. Now, I do have some information on this. Apparently, he's in a movie with the great Darren Aronofsky, who I love. Of course, Requiem for a Dream, The Wrestler. And in this film... This is the story. Brendan Fraser plays a 600-pound man named Charlie who tries to reconnect with his 17-year-old daughter. The two grew apart after Charlie abandoned his family for his gay lover who later died. Charlie then went on to binge eat out of pain and guilt. That film is coming out at some point, they're hoping, this year. Uh, A24 has the global rights to it. Now, they just finished the movie. It literally took a month to shoot, March 8th until April 7th. Now, I'm not suggesting Brendan Fraser put on 600 pounds. I think he put on some weight, and then probably a fat suit for this movie, and Soderbergh just shot this movie, so maybe it was residual fat weight Man, that he still had for the A role, role that calls for binge eating. That, I mean, that's 600 just, that's... pounds is excessive. <laughs> it makes me think immediately, and I know that this is uh, some delicate subject matter, but I feel like I've got a wide berth here because I am a literal wide berth. No. <laughs> when I was in my 20s, I just remember, I, this is what I, when you say 600 pound man, I remember a Walter Hudson. I remember this name specifically because it's a, war, a story worth telling, and then you'll appreciate this. I, I did. I'm dying at the fact, the specificity of this, the fact well, that you remember well, Walter Hudson. I remember all the details here because he was a man so heavy, Adnan, 
that he had to, I'm pretty sure they had to tear the roof off of his house and pull him out of his house with a crane. And you are being polite and delicate and nice here, but you're also red faced with laughter. And I don't think the audience realizes how hard that is to do given Adnan's general hue. He is now totally red. And the reason he is red is because of what I'm about to tell you. Walter Hudson was extracted from his house via crane. Okay. And so the photograph in all the tabloids during the tabloid age was of him being taken from his home over a lawn that was covered with media members who had microphones out as he hovered above them in a crane and the caption said only i just don't want it to be a circus Oh my God! You have a six hundred pound man. You have a crane. You have microphones. I just don't want this to be a circus. The last thing I want to be is a distraction. I'm just trying to fit in here. Bozo in the corner. There's a trapeze artist here. This is what we got here on. You picked the wrong movie. You picked the wrong producer. You picked the wrong producer in the wrong movie, and instead, what you get is a well, you yes. get a you get a Walter Hudson. It's side door. <laughs> That's what you get. And yes, I don't know how Brendan Fraser is going to feel about the fact that he's gained so much weight that I'm comparing him to a 600-pound man who was crane lifted out of his home over a lawn filled with reporters. Oh, that does it. We've got to get Brendan Fraser into the file. We've got to get him in the Levitard show. That does it. Well, let's get the book bur- bookers on this immediately. Uh, Dan, I don't know how you did it, but this is more absurdist theater that you're bringing from your show here to Cinephile, and I appreciate and laud you for it. We Thank are you. thrilled, Adnan, to have you aboard, and I ask your audience of zealots who love you the way that you are to please accept that Adnan and we are working together here so that this can be, over time, something that grows in, in voice and in range so Adnan is doing all the things with this that he wants to so that this platform can be what he wants it to be because his passions are so great in this area that they need fuel. And you were giving me that fuel and that juice. And by the way, I met with our friend Bimmel, M. Night Shyamalan doppelganger. (laughs) I mean... Unbelievable. I wanted to ask him about his new film, Old, in the midst of him telling me about Metal Arc Media. <laughs> it's very inside. I don't know that that's a joke that I can get away with. I'm not sure how that I, I said that last week, too, when he <laughs> said I'm, I'm so no, glad you said That's what Cody said. I had the same joke, is, the same reaction. Pause. Cody goes, I think Cody Adnan, Adnan this is why joke. This is the space for you to be super edgy, okay? that This right, is the right. space where you can make fun of the way. Look at this. We fat-shamed Walter Hudson. I don't know what his backstory is or where he, he's probably not still with us. He can't still be with us. Why am I laughing about this? And now, <laughs> and now you're saying, now you're saying uh, that someone looks like M. Night Shyamalan and you can say it and I cannot. And nobody knows who that person is listening to this. Not a single person. He's been referenced two weeks in a row on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Do I hear three weeks in a row next week? We'll you get should have him on. You should have him on to review M. Night Shyamalan movies. <laughs> It's reviewer Bimmel coming soon to discuss M. Night Shyamalan's old. Thanks, Dan. Get out of here. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here 
and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I thought we were going to do Luca with Levitard. What the hell? It's all good. I'm not blaming you, Cody. I, I mean, those- I, 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 I have some beef here with Dan. Like, I, I don't want to do that thing where I start reading the text exchange and see who was to blame here. Yeah. I, all I know is I said to him in a follow, there was a group text, like, long story short, not going to get into all of it. Dan, I clearly said Luca in one of the texts that Dan just didn't look at. Listen. I'm he not he gonna, didn't I'm- look at it. He didn't look at it. Yeah, I mean, come on. He didn't look at look this. Luca at it. Uh, it's like how Arnold Schwarzenegger was saying. Listen, we're all on Team Cody. Let's be clear. Um, so let's get to Luca. It's about a couple of seahorses. That's right, sea monsters. These guys are under the water, and then when they get out of the water, they turn into humans. But the key is they can't get water splashed in them because then they turn back into sea monsters. And it's in Italy, and I love Italy, and it's a beautiful countryside, and sun-dappled, and these guys become good buddies. It's Luca and Alberto. They ride bikes together. They want to get a Vespa together. They have a friend named Julia. They eat a ton of pasta together. I mean, it's like everybody who loves Italy, Italian dreams, etc. And, of course, the dark side is uh, they hunt sea monsters. So if somebody finds out their secret, they're in trouble. So basically, it's a fable about, you know, accepting others and, uh, you know, no matter what your differences are, liking each other. And I'm thinking it's about platonic friendship. But now there's been like a slew of other information, which is why it's interesting. Maybe you shouldn't read things before you watch it so you can watch it objectively. But people saying, hey, is this actually a gay romance, Cody? Is this actually Pixar's first gay movie? That's honestly, when you said we were doing this movie, I was like, I've heard this. This is a nice, uh, you know, new Disney film. But the headlines you see around that stuff has been what's kind of been interesting to me. Right. So I... I let me put it this way. As a movie itself, I'll give it three Maple Leafs. It's uh, Pixar light, nothing special, but again, beautiful animation. It's well-voiced. Um, you know, it's not exactly up when it comes to the great Pixar movies, but it's fine. Of course, my kids enjoyed it. We have a low bar. We're good to go. But what I think is more interesting around the conversation is, wait, did they actually make a same-sex movie? So the director for his part said, no, we did not. He said, this is about others and accepting others, and that wasn't what it was. But it's funny, Cody, if you go digging, you're like, oh, kind of see the subtext here. There's one scene, their hands are linking with each other, always oh, arms around his waist. Like, I'm not necessarily looking for something that's there, but when I read these articles, I could see how a case could be made. But is it something that, without these articles, you would have thought of? Or was it these so, articles no. are leading you there, kind of? I think the articles are kind of leading me there, I'll be honest. When watching it, I think, oh, it's a sweet story. It's about friendship. These guys are hanging out, having a good time. Okay, cool. Once I read those articles, it led me astray. So while watching the film, I started thinking about it, going, oh, are they gay or are they not that gay? Which, listen, it doesn't matter to the point of enjoying the movie, but it is just interesting how you can be framed in a certain way by something you read or something someone says. It seems like they made a movie where there's just like, is it, isn't it? Whereas I would think people in the gay community, if it was going to be 
a movie about that, like own it kind of thing. Don't like imply all these things and then come out afterwards and say, no, it's not. I mean, you know, it could just not be, but it's just right. like interesting that that dynamic's been interesting. Yeah, that is interesting because you're like, hey, if we are doing this, then you're right. The gay audience is like, this is amazing. Finally, get a movie that satisfies our interests, our attention, et cetera. But if it isn't, I mean, you don't have to say it is if it isn't. So I'm with you. It's, a, it's just an interesting conversation to have. Luke, it's a good kids movie, uh, and I definitely recommend it. Now let's get to Sam Watson. I can't wait. This guy's the author of The Big Goodbye, Chinatown, the last years of Hollywood. He's got great energy. He's got great stories. You're going to love Great hair, too. I mean, like, this is just for us because no one's going to get to see him in this. It's just a, a, an audio medium. But the guy's hair was just like it, it. It's exactly the way you want a writer's hair to look like a yeah, little a little disheveled, a little disheveled, <laughs> but a little put together. I mean, the guy had a look. It was perfect. He did ask us as we started because this is just audio, right? I'm like, yeah, it's just so I could see you. But I'm like, I wish we could see this guy's hair. Sam's awesome. So obviously, I'm a lover of movies, and people, when they ask me, what books do you read? I said, um, I read movie books. Easy Riders, Raging Bulls is one of my favorite books. Of course, the work of Mark Harris. And now I've got Sam Watson's book, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown, and the Last Years of Hollywood, which, if I didn't have four kids, I would have finished this in one sitting. Instead, it took me 10 days, which may have been actually more enjoyable, because I could soak up all the rich anecdotes of one of the great films of the 70s. And like many people, 70s movies are my favorite era of movies, even though I was born in 78. Long way of saying, Sam Watson's here, the author of this great, great book. Sam, congratulations on an incredible achievement. Thank you. That was such a nice thank you. Well, listen, let's dive right in, okay? I've got this separated just as you go with the main characters. I got my Polanski questions, Nicholson, Town, Evans, and a little bit of Faye Dunaway. So let's go right with Polanski. And I'm going to hit you hard right out of the gate. So this guy is a genius. He's an artistic genius. He did an amazing job with this movie. And the fact that for years, you know, I used to always think that, oh, Robert Town's written one of the heavyweight champions of great scripts, which I love that you pointed out. The reason why is because I think it was Sid Thrift, right, years later, said, oh, Robert Town, Chinatown. That's the greatest script ever. I'm like, okay, I guess it is. And then you read this book and you go, wait a second, Robert Town deserves a lot of credit for his intelligence, uh, for the concept, but the structure is all Polanski. This great quote you have here in the book, page 250, in which he's talking to the composer he hired, and he goes, you think this piece of shit story is bad now? I'll show you the original, Skip. Do you want to see it? It was the biggest pile of crap you ever saw. Who wrote it? Robert Town. But what you see here today on the screen, I actually wrote, but I'm not taking any credit for it. What do you say? We'll get into the off-the-field stuff, so to speak. But Polanski, as a filmmaker, what he did with Chinatown, Sam, remarkable stuff. To take that script and, dare I say, humble enough to not fight for screen credit. You are so great. I can't do any better than what you just said. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, no, he didn't. I asked I asked Polanski. I said, you know, why? Why did it's 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 well acknowledged that Polanski structured this script. I don't think I I certainly didn't. That wasn't a scoop. Uh, but I, 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 I asked him uh, why he didn't take credit. And he said, um, you know, we were all friends. There wasn't that kind of money in those days. Um, people were playing the long game. They were thinking about relationships. They weren't thinking about, um, you know, feeding, feeding their greed right now. They weren't hungry that way. Um, they were doing it for the right reasons. And, and I was very touched when, when Roman told me, uh, when Roman told me that. It's amazing they did not take credit for it because just his seamlessness, uh, his preparation. I mean, the story about the ants with Nicholson, he's putting an ant on Nicholson's face and it took 40 minutes. And at one point, Nicholson goes, how long are you staying in this shot? He goes, eh, one or two seconds. Like that, that's the type of uh, methodical nature that I guess a lot of great directors have, but certainly Polanski had. Tell us the story when him and Nicholson got in a fight. This is hysterical. Jack was a great guy, by the way. 
as you point out in the book, on set, reading the sports section, hanging out with the guys, never secluded, except for when the Lakers was on. So close game. Yeah. Roman's taking too long. I got to go watch the Lakers game. Pick up the story there. Jack said, um, I got to go watch the game. And, and Roman wouldn't let him. And, and so they, 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 uh, Jack retreated to his little trailer to watch the game and Roman burst in and cracked up his tele cracked up Jack's television. And then, um, Jack started screaming at Roman and they ran outside and they're not going to throw punches at each other cause they're friends. So they're kind of half joking. They started throwing their clothes at each other. So they got completely naked and then chased each other out of the studio and caught up, um, uh, caught up outside on Melrose, I guess, and started laughing. And um, that was the beauty of Chinatown. It was not a miserable production. It was a good, it was a good time had by people who really respected each other. Let's get into the Polanski off the field, as I would put it. So, listen, he suffers this horrific tragedy with Sharon Tate, which you put into explicit detail. Hey, I'm coming home, baby. I'm going to see you soon. She's murdered, and it's, it's just unnerving feeling of who did it. Maybe people think I did it. Um, maybe it's my friends, my somebody that I'm close to, my inner circle. He, of course, overcame Auschwitz and the horrific uh, images of the ghetto, which he put into the pianist, which he later won Best Director. Which is to say that this is a guy who's been through a lot. The girls were young, too young. He didn't see any problem. He didn't hide it. I like young women, he would say to the press. Uh, later on, <clears throat> the, this story is unreal. The phone rang in the cutting room. Lambro picked it up. Lambro's doing the score with him. It was a girl's voice. You have the wrong extension, Lambro told her. There's no Paul here. That's for me, Polanski said, reaching for the phone. Lambro had earlier browsed an adult newspaper left in the cutting room, glancing a personal ad circled 15-year-old girl, confidential, likes relationship with European man in 40s. And then, of course, you get to the scene. You really build it up well. What exactly happened with Samantha Gailey, who was 13 years of age, they do drugs together, Polanski and her, after taking some pictures of her. They have some booze together. Polanski had performed cunnilingus on Gailey, had sex with her, and sodomized her. What is it like for you, Sam Wasson, author? You're putting together a book about one of the great films of all time, and yet the central character is a genius and also a clearly, deeply flawed man. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's, it's, a, thrilling, it's a thrilling creative challenge. Um, and, and also a, a, a thrilling responsibility to get to write about um, a genius, um, especially um, given that I don't think he's been written about compassionately, um, which is the responsibility of every biographer, I, I think, to consider their subject compassionately. It's the only way to try to understand um, which isn't to say to justify, to apologize, to excuse, but certainly not to moralize. Um, you know, I think it was Frank Langella <laughs> to go from the sublime to the Langella when he was asked about playing Dracula. You know, he said he can't, you can't judge Dracula. You gotta love Dracula if you're playing, if you're playing the part, you know? I mean, and anyone who writes so a bad guy, whatever that means, if we can even say there's such a thing as a bad guy, which is a philosophical quandary I'm not even equipped to engage with. So let's just say you're writing a guy who did a bad thing. You know, you can't, you, 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 history dies in, in the morals and art dies in the morals. And I, I, I dare say I'm endeavoring to write art. So it's most important that the character lives, which is why it was a creative challenge. And also, you know, 
a scary one for all the reasons that, that, I, that I said. Yeah, and I think credit to you because you don't shy away from it. Here's the great. Here's the other stuff. You be the judge. Right. So this is the guy's life. So I'm telling you as fully as I can tell it. Right. And you include the stuff. Polanski said later it was all done with innocence. I don't think anybody was hurt later in time. Did tell Diane Sawyer rather benignly. It was not the right thing to do. There was no premeditation. It was something that just happened. She was certainly too young. Samantha Geimer, for her credit, says he was arrogant and horny, but I feel certain he was not looking to take pleasure in my pain. That's Polanski. Now let's get to Jack. Nicholson's amazing. Jersey guy, which is where I reside, and he comes across great in this book. I, I think he seems like exactly what I expect Jack Nicholson to be. One of the Thank guys, you. good guy, collaborative, um, st- stands by Polanski without judgment or moralization, without defense. Hey, listen, I know what he did, but he's my buddy. Um, this is great writing by you. Town literally studied Nicholson, amazed by his staggering ability to draw off the shortest line of dialogue to make a long meal of crumbs. He realized that Nicholson's innate mastery of suspense of making the audience wait and wait for him to reach the end of a line added drama to the most commonplace speech. And Nicholson's monotone, rather than bore the listener, inflected the mundane with an ironic tilt. With a great actor like his friend Jack, Town realized a writer didn't have to force depth and emotion into his dialogue. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love writing about Jack. You always get nervous when you start to research someone because you're afraid you're going to find you're going to fall out of love. You know, it's always possible you, you fall more in love. I'm writing about Coppola now and I've only fallen more in love with Jack. It was the same. I, I fell I fell more in love. And you're always worried about actors, especially, you know, are they presenting the version of themselves to the world? That's really who they are. Do I really want to know this person? Who is this person? Can he be knowable? You know, is he just uh, or is he just a lifelong, you know, um, cipher? But but Jack is not that way. You know, Jack is a he's a team player. It's why he loves sports. He's a he's a, a, a movie lover. That's also why he loves sports, because movies are a team sport. And he really wants what's best for the movie time and time again. So I was really I was really moved by um, by the character of, of, of Jack. And I think there's a great Thank story you. about Nicholson, about the fact that he was a guy who always remembered his friends. And I mean, this is a guy he once yeah. saw his dad swallow 35 shots of Hennessy, but I never heard him raise his voice. I never saw him be angry with anyone, not even my mother. A quiet, melancholy, tragic figure. This story, I think, illuminates Nicholson better than anything he could have done. A noble deed was often all it took to win Jack's friendship for life. The day he met Robert Evans, early in 1969, Evans offered Nicholson, then unknown, 10 grand to play a short part in On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, the actor's first big Hollywood movie. Pal, you don't know me, Jack whispered to Evans, but I sure know how you are. Could you do me a big favor? Shoot. You see, I just got a divorce. I got a kid. got to pay alimony. got to pay child support. I'm on empty. Could you make it 15? How about 12-5, Evans said. Nicholson never forgot it. For $2,500, Sam, he's a friend for life. He'll do anything for this guy. That is very illuminating about Nicholson. And he did. And he did. And that's the way Hollywood used to be. There was there was a real, I should say, the 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 emotional uh, um, virtues of that are obvious. You know, we all love loyalty. We all need loyalty. Um, but there are professional virtues uh, to that in an old in a Hollywood where um, business turned on talent, you know, um, and you wanted to be close with the most talented people because that's how you made the best movies. And in an era where marketing um, didn't sell the movie, but actual quality and artistry did, the best business decision you could make would be to have Nicholson or Town or Polanski as your friend. And 
that it's to Evan's great credit that he was as good a friend as he was a um, sniffer out of talent. Talk with Sam Watson, the big goodbye. Everyone go buy it. Chinatown and the last years of Hollywood. He's a New York Times bestselling author of Fifth Avenue Five. And as you said, he's working on a book about Coppola. When's the book on Coppola coming out? Before I go any further. Oh, God. Oh, God. Two years? <laughs> it's not a small subject. It's not just the one movie like Chinatown. We're going Rumblefish. We're going all over the place. Okay. Yes, I love Rumblefish. Let's get to town. I always thought Hemingway's The Old Man on the Sea was about the creative process. The old man was good enough to hook the big fish, but he wasn't strong enough to reel it in. That's the tragedy of it. He could conceive of a great novel, but couldn't complete it. And eventually, he blew his brains out. The way that town, <laughs> nice, nice way to look at this. There. <laughs> um, yeah. Just the idea that he said, you know what? I'm writing a movie for my buddy Jack. I want to do a film noir. I want to do a detective story. I want to do something about Los Angeles. Big themes, right? Yeah. He's swinging for the fences. And it's all going to be about water. I just love Robert Town's ambition and the concept of this. And by the way, the incest storyline, like how he gets that uh, with Barry Chase and Eddie Taylor in this garage going to the detail. Amazing stuff. How you unearth that? That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. And I did that. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's new. I mean, I got to speak to Barry, who's a, a wonderful, wonderful person. Fred Astaire's last partner. I mean, she's got a great story of her own. You know, Barry. She. Uh, we're, but anyhow. So for town, yeah, specifically to the ambition of the fact that he, like I said, he is swinging for the fences on this. It's the birth of yeah. Los Angeles, film noir, and I'm going to make it about water. It's like, what? I know. It's not a good pitch, is it? <laughs> and there's you a big incest storyline. Trust me, it's going to blow up everybody's mind. God, what kind of movie is this? Um, how does that happen? Because the people making decisions went with talent. Because Bob Evans, who didn't like the pitch any better than you or I do, <laughs> Like the writer, and he liked the elements, and he said, "I don't see it yet, but um, let's go with it. What's this going to cost me? A couple hundred for the script, maybe a couple million for the movie. So it doesn't work out. You know, we could get nominated for some Oscars, and I have a good time with my friends. No one is shooting the moon here financially for box office. No one needs the one hundred million dollar movie. So as crazy as that pitch is, it also sounds like well." I'm going to trust the writer to come through with an interesting script and we'll see if we can attract some talent. That's how they used to do it. Um, so, in fact, when you think about it that way, it's not so crazy. It's crazier to think about spending, you know, $300 million on Avengers 6, which we're going to flush down our cultural toilet in five minutes. <laughs> Uh, town comes across like a tragic figure because I said this guy had a great run with the last detail Chinatown and shampoo and then later yeah. on has a kid and then tells his partner hey, I'm going to start doing cocaine just a heads up like I'm gonna, it's going to help me run yeah. and stuff I'm going to use vodka to flatten it out and eventually I'm like dude like he, he because of this horrific drug problem whether or not you believe he assaulted his wife there's other stuff in there it seems to me a real waste of talent and especially with the two Jakes he left Nicholson hanging here basically with the story yeah, well, Coke is one of the Coke is one of the devils of this of this story. Uh, it 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 fucked with uh, a lot of a lot of great talent. Not even in this story. I mean, this story meaning the seventies. Um, Coke was Coke was bad. I mean, the 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 decade came in with with pot, uh, which you know could could be annoying to to some film production schedules and and. But Coke was destructive uh, and and was an ep epidemic. Uh, I, one wonders, you know, what, how many more years of the 70s we would have had without Coke?
Yeah, I think so. I've talked to Ben Mankiewicz about this, of course, our buddy at TCM, and he said to me, you know, the 70s movies are so great. And he goes, well, it's actually 67 to 77, because at that point, the cocaine ruined everything. And fine, you can tag on Apocalypse Now, Raging Bull's incredible, but the cocaine and the drugs and the excess, it just messed everybody up. Like Hal Ashby is a great example. Like you said, the pot, well, yeah. after a while, he's an inveterate pot smoker. You can't make anything. It's ridiculous. Which gets me to Evans, who I think is the most charismatic guy in the entire book. I would love to hang with Thank Robert you. Evans. And I, I, oh, I, I got to. Oh. I love one of the joys of my life. Yeah. Like, I, listen, I, I've seen the, I've read The Kid Stays in the Picture, then I saw the documentary. This guy's a phenomenal guy. He's got 32 yeah. phones at one point, an average of two yeah. per room. He said, I'd rather have one week of magic and a lonely six months than just an okay yeah. six months one week of greatness no i'll go to a great night rather than g just a decent month his last night of monogamy yeah. ended with his first wet dream i, I mean I, yeah. they, they don't make him like they, <laughs> <laughs> they don't make him like they used to and robert evans is one of those guys who's man i love movies my passion is movies i've ruined personal relationships because of movies like what a romantic what a fascinating character what a romantic what a romantic i evans is a evans is his own great story it's a story that everyone it's a story that everyone knows. I, I hope to get a little closer to the heart. Uh, I hope to get a little closer to the romantic, as you said, because um, this guy, um, this guy, and I was with him there in the last the last couple of weeks. He was living. He was he was still dreaming. You know, he had movie ideas. Some of them were crackpot, craze movie ideas. But some of them, you think, God, in another world, Evans. Maybe this maybe this could have happened. He was a beautiful he was a beautiful guy, and he had his demons like everything else. And he certainly terrorized Coppola on Godfather. Um, but you know, with 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 enormous vision comes you know um, enormous <laughs> enormous violation. <laughs> and God 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 bless the man for having the vision. We would not. Uh, we would not have the movies we have without him. He was taking cocaine because it was better for his back. And Bart had to say, you don't do it for your back. <laughs> <laughs> so he says. So yeah. he says. Evans was too interested in work and getting laid to be distracted by drugs. Um, this is it's a true. great section here that you wrote here on Evans. And, uh, I, got, well, I set this up first. The music. Because the music of Chinatown is indelible. And they yeah. listen to the score and they go, what the hell is this? It's avant-garde. Yeah. It's jittery. And he goes, he goes to Jerry Goldsmith, you got to save my life. Like literally save my right. life. Tell the story of how the score came to be in 10 days. Right. Oh God. Well, the, they, they threw out, they threw out the Philip Lambro score, which is available on YouTube for free. I just encourage you Chinatown people to ch check that out. Um, and, and um, you can see that it's, it was not, it was not where Evans' heart was. And if Evans is anywhere in this movie, he's he's in that score. And when he described it to me, he was he was virtually virtually weeping. But but you know, as is so often the case with a lot of musicians, it comes to them immediately, you know? And Goldsmith was one of those guys. Evans knocked on his door and and 10 days later, he had virtually the the complete the complete score. It's amazing how Goldsmith saved it. And this writing is great. Page 259. For Evans, it was more than moonlight and ocean winds and Gatsby's green flare across the bay. It was not fantasy, but palpable evidence of a dream becoming true. The rare and shivery threshold of immeasurable pleasure. The promise imagination grants the mundane and the mountain stream through which beauty and goodness against all probability and reason flow down into the world as art. Hearing that music for the first time, thinking of his father, he cried. I mean, that. Yeah. I wanted to get choked up reading that, Sam. That's great. 
Thank you. That I'm, I actually, thank you. That's really, I like that passage. That makes me feel thank you. Yeah. And that's, dude, that's, that's, that comes from Evans. Yeah. I mean, I did the work, but he did the, he did the, he did the love. Couple more here. Faye Dunaway. I feel for her because, listen, she's a beautiful actress. She's talented. She had a miserable time on the set. Crew didn't like her. Uh, she's a pain in the ass. She's uh, difficult. She asked too many questions. Her and Polanski don't like each other. They're yelling at each other, too. Um, the, I love, by the way, what a great line by Nicholson when she's complaining to him. And she loved Jack, by the way. Again, Jack, everyone loved Jack. Yeah. She's everyone loves Jack. She complains to Jack and he says, you think you've got problems, Dredd? You realize this is the first time I'm playing a leading man? I'm spending three quarters of the week with a bandage covering half my face. <laughs> but this was tough to reconcile about Polanski. This is where Jack's slapping her, and he says, all right, Toots, like, I'm going to give it to you. And Polanski says, give it to her. And she says, all right. Her face burned where Jack's slaps had landed from the blows across her right cheek. Her neck ached. Once more, please, her director said once more. It was because he was short. The young girl, she thought his sarcasm and needless cruelty directing movies, it was about power for him, all of it. Poor Faye Dunaway. I mean, she, Evelyn Mulray is getting her ass kicked on screen and off by Polanski and just the whole subject matter. Well, there are different theories about acting, you know, you know, a lot of people need need the moment to be real. And it's a gift when someone gives you the opportunity to have a, a real moment. You know, I think it was Clark Gable who during a sex scene before a sex scene, he said to his leading lady, um, Madam, uh, forgive me if I'm aroused and forgive me if I'm not. <laughs> and <laughs> something like something like that. Yeah. And, and and this is the job of artists and actors is to walk is to walk these lines, and um, it's it's not easy to always hit that perfect bullseye. Now, in the case of this particular scene, um, it's fabulous work by all of them. Um, and you know whether or not you believe that the ends justify the means, that's a philosophic thing that each person has his or her own, you know, uh, view on. Um, I, I would think all of these years later, Faye Dunaway is proud of her incredible, oh. incredible work in this in this movie. That scene, my sister, my daughter. I mean, it's it's uh, it's yeah. all time great. It's amazing she plays that. Yeah. Uh, when the lights came up, John Kelly didn't know what to say. The Exorcist, his movie at Warner Brothers, violated just about every stronghold of good taste. What the fuck did we just see? He loved the movie, but Satan, vomit, a little girl masturbating with a crucifix, your mother sucks cocks in hell. He was too afraid to even preview it. Would people see this thing? That's where I want to end, Sam. The movies they were making in the seventies, the chutzpah, the balls they had. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I mean, all we can do is just scream into the night and say, we're not romanticizing it. These movies were real. People made these movies. It was better then. And the proof is on the screen. And it's almost haunting that at one point they're talking about the ending and town wanted a much more romanticized ending. And someone mm -hmm. said, you know what? It just has to end with a blonde woman getting murdered, right? It, on a very chilling level, Polanski was yeah. working through stuff. There was Sharon Tate that you knew. And one of, the, one of the great things about Chinatown is how haunting that ending is, how unrelentingly oh. pessimistic it is. You go, holy oh. shit, like this is the movie? Like, yeah. We wouldn't be talking about this movie if it was not, if that ending was not there. Yeah. It, it, it's stunting. And, and we didn't even get in John Houston. What, what, a, what an actor. I mean, this guy's on. Oh, call me tomorrow. We can, we can, <laughs> I'll have Coke for all of us. <laughs> 
Uh, do you agree? Everybody just, wins. Just, yeah, by the way, Nicholson would give away vials of cocaine to everybody as a Christmas present yeah. and cocaine everywhere. So yeah. It's a different time. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, he did. <laughs> I love the idea, too, by the way. When I saw there will be blood, and Daniel D. Lewis, as you know, doesn't talk to anybody, but somebody said, you know, he's doing a John Houston impression. The whole movie, right. he's doing yeah. John Houston. If you've ever seen John yeah. Houston, you go, oh, yeah, yeah. he actually sound exactly like I can't like, believe he got away with it, frankly. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's more than an homage. That's plagiarism. Oh, a thousand percent. Uh, I wish everybody yeah, yeah. could write like this. I wish we could all plagiarize Sam Washington, a brilliant author. Oh. The book is called The Big Goodbye, Chinatown and the Last Years of Hollywood. Sam, I'm going to start reading your other stuff because this is the first one I've read. So I look forward to Thank Fosse you. and Fifth Avenue 5 a.m. And, Thank and, you. And Coppola's coming in what, 2023? 20, what's this, 21? Yeah, 20, 23. So don't overdose. <laughs> <laughs> I won't pull a Robert Evans or Robert Town. All right, I'll good. Until the end. This was awesome. Good. Man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Call anytime. <laughs> Thank you, man. This was a ton of fun. Thanks so much to Sam Watson. Again, check out his work, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown, The Last Years of Hollywood. I'm going to go look up his other books. I don't know a whole lot about Fosse, but... Are you actually going to... That's. Are you going to do it, though? That's one of those things you say to somebody when they're on, like, hey, I'm going to read the rest of your work. No, no I am, because... Uh, listen, I'll, let me put it this way. I'm definitely looking up samwasson.com to look at what his other work is. And of his books, if there's something that catches my attention, I will definitely check it out. But to be honest, to your point, Fosse, I'm not crazy about. Like, I know he's a great, you know, song and dance man. I got it. I can watch Sam Rockwell, the documentary. Uh, Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m. I don't I don't know what that's about. It's Audrey Hepburn, maybe. Uh, you're kind. Of, you're catching me halfway in the line. Like, <laughs> am I going tomorrow to buy the book? No. But if it's like, if he actually wrote a book about taxi driver, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Great, I'll buy it tomorrow. So I, I'm not being, uh, I'm not being completely facetious. Next week, by the way, Black Widow comes out. So I think that's kind of a movie Cody and I will both watch. I hope so. Scarlett Johansson, big new movie coming out. Uh, Stephen Dorff, by the way, slammed it. We'll do that next week on Cinephile. Stephen Dorff is not in the movie, but he was slamming Black Widow. Uh, we'll do that plus some other guests. And thanks to Dan Levitard, of course, uh, for making an appearance as well. Until then. I'll see you at the movies.